Good morning. Thank you, Robert, for reading my articles and for noticing something I didn't even notice. You're right. The last sentence of each one of those articles, they're not dissimilar. They're exactly the same. Work hard this week with an exclamation point. You, you, you know, I, when you brought that to light, I thought, you know, why did I do that? Um, well, I just finished. I have three extremely busy weeks every year. Every week is busy, but as a CPA, financial planner, I have three especially busy weeks, and I just came off one of those weeks. A lot of times I think in my, my writing and my, my teaching and my preaching, uh, what's going on in my life just comes out. So um, also, many of you know this, many of you may not if you're visiting or you're a new member, but the, the weekly memory verse, I generally will write an article on that verse. And, and this week's memory verse was, the rich man's wealth is his fortress and the ruin of the poor is their poverty. I just thought that was an extremely thought-provoking statement. You know, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. You know, that just sounds so carnal and worldly. So I thought I would write an article on that. And then in the weekly reading in the newsletter, I have a Bible reading schedule. So last week, as well as this week, I've been reading through the book of Proverbs, and that Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, verse surfaced, and sort of stuck with me. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And so when you're forced to work hard, um, all of a sudden those you need to work hard verses become very relevant in, in your life. So that that explains that. But, but thank you for bringing that to my attention. Now, having shared with you that statement about how sometimes... What, what's going on in my life comes out in, in my um, teaching and preaching. We're going to be uh, studying another sermon. I think I have a different pointer. Blake, I'm pressing the button and it's not going. Did I do that or did you do that? You did it, so you're going to have to do this. I can't do this. Okay. All right. Press it again. Okay. The end of all things is near. So, Mike, what, what else has been going on in your mind lately? Well, this just so happens to be a verse that is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we have been studying on Wednesday night from the book of 1 Peter, and we don't always go as in-depth in passages as maybe we need to or maybe I would like to. And, and this is one of those statements that just um, kind of jumps off the page at you. It, it makes me think of a, a preacher that, and I use that term loosely, he, he was a preacher who used to come on campus at Auburn. Um, Blake, you're back there. You were at Auburn the same time as I was. Do you remember um, the preacher? I think his name was Jim. Did you ever see Jeb, Preacher Jeb? Okay, he's ready. He's thumbs up. Okay, so there was, a, a, and I, again, I use the term loosely, and he was kind of a comical figure, which is another way of saying he was kind of a nut. Um, but he would come around and he would preach, and boy, he would really, he would just rip the fraternities and the, the sororities 
they would stand up. And I, I remember this one spot really close to Haley Center where it was kind of like a natural pulpit podium area, and he'd stand up there, and he would start preaching. And, and, and I remember he, uh, he would talk about college students, and he'd say, you're just like... You're just like that song by the Rolling Stones. And then he would start singing, I can't get no satisfaction. And that was one of the, the sermons that he would preach. And, and, and then he used to talk a lot about how the end of all things is near. Well, when you're a college student and you're hearing that, and I'm not talking about myself because I knew better, um, you know, you're thinking about this doctrine out there that you go to the books of prophecy and you go to the Bible and, and you see the signs of the times and, and all of a sudden you just start thinking, well, the Lord's about to return. And when you see a statement like that, that, that sort of goes through your mind. The end of all things is near. The world is about to come to an end. But when you look at the context here in First Peter, you see that Peter is not speaking about the return of Jesus. Now, ultimately, we, we're always looking forward. We always understand that, that the Lord may come back at, at any time. But if you'll look in 1 Peter chapter 4 and you drop down to verse 12, you look at the context, you also notice the statement. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. So there's something that's coming. There's something ahead that is going to be a, a major trial for early disciples. Now, Peter probably wrote this letter AD, AD 64, 65, so we would say the early 60s, uh, mid-60s. Now, if you think about historically what, what's going to take place soon, it's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So they're only a few years away from what in, in the minds of many of the Jews is going to be a, forgive the use of the term, but an apocalyptic event. You know, this is going to be the end of the Jewish order. And it, it's, the, it's the end of the Jewish order. It's, there's going to be the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. There's going to be the leveling of the temple. The Jews are no longer going to be able to go back to the city of Jerusalem and, and worship, use that as a place of worship. So in, in a very real sense, from that perspective, the end of all things was near for them, the end of that Jewish order. And that was going to end because of their rejection of Jesus as being the Messiah. Well, okay, so how, the, how does that affect Christians? Well, in, in the Roman mind, the, the Jews and the Christians were basically the same because to them, Christianity was just another sect of Judaism. They connected Christianity with Judaism. So if, if the Romans are unleashing their fury against the Jews in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, disciples or Christians throughout the world are going to be affected by that. They're going to suffer. Now, we also know that, that Nero would be an emperor. He may have even been the emperor at the writing of this letter. And he was one who persecuted Christians. He burned them. He would, he would hang them up, and he would light up the city at night by burning Christians. They would throw them in, into the, the arena to be eaten by lions. And that's just how bad things got. And they're only going to get worse. Domitian would be uh, a Roman empire toward the end of the first century, and that's when things really began to heat up for, Christ, for Christians. 
And that's what triggered the writing of the book of Revelation, which was a response to the, the prayers of those saints who would be suffering under an oppressive government. So Peter is, and you see this in the letter, he, he writes a lot about suffering, suffering for Christ. He, he's trying to get the disciples to, to realize that this is just a part of Christianity. When, when you suffer, when you're persecuted, your response is just to be in submission. It, it's, it's like the, the, the comments that, that Seth made earlier about the Lord's Supper. Jesus is an example of what to do when you're suffering for doing what's right. You don't speak out. You don't revile in return. You don't revolt. You don't try to overthrow the government. You don't take up arms. You be submissive. You be submissive to cruel masters. You be submissive to the, the, the governing institutions that were in place at, at whatever time. You honor the king. The end of all things is near. In your life, in my life, there's going to be hard times. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be trial. There's going to be difficulties from an economic and a financial standpoint. There are going to be problems in marriage. There are going to be problems with raising children. And you know when you're, when, you're, when you're married and you're trying to raise your children the right way, sometimes husbands and wives even find themselves in conflict over how best to raise the children. Well, don't think that that means that you've got a problem marriage. All that means is that you care. It just means that you're trying to do the right thing. People who don't give a hoot about what their children grow up to be, they're not going to fuss and argue about how best to raise the children because they don't really care. Again, I don't know why I went off that tangent. But, but anyway, uh, you know, in life you just have problems. You have trials. Therefore, look at the verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore. There are certain things we need to do in response. There are certain things we need to do to prepare ourselves for the suffering that lies ahead. The first of which is we need sober minds focused in prayer. Peter writes, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What's going to get us through it? What's going to activate the providence of God on our behalf whenever we're suffering? It's prayer. What is conducive to effective prayer? A clear mind. Sound judgment. When is it most likely that you're not going to think correctly? It's when you're under the gun. It's when life is coming at you from 50 different directions. You've got problems in your marriage. You've got problems raising kids. You can't pay the mortgage. Your boss is giving you a difficult time. Your business is going belly up. It, when it rains, it pours, doesn't it? And when, when we're in those situations, we just can't think clearly. 
We're intoxicated with anxiety. We are intoxicated with worry. We don't have to be alcoholics and drug addicts. We can be under the influence of the world so that we have a very difficult time maintaining a focus in prayer. And prayer is the very thing that is the resource available to the child of God which will activate God's providence so that we can get through it. In this same letter in the first chapter, you'll remember if you're studying it, if not, you've read it. Therefore, 1 Peter chapter 1, based upon the salvation that will be ours, a salvation that will, that will come through the testing of our faith. He writes about that in chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end of all things is near. Problems are ahead. You're going to face trial. You're going to face difficulty. And for that reason, stay focused. Don't let life blind your judgment. Don't let those problems become such a, a burden that you can't think clearly. I think about a statement in Romans 13 where Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, states in Romans 13 and verse 11, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from, from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Some might say, well, that means that the Lord's about to return. No, it just means that you're closer. You're closer to the day of your death or you're closer to the time of the Lord's return, assuming that the Lord returns in your lifetime, than when you obeyed the gospel. Stay awake. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep now. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. James 5, verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In that same chapter, James chapter 5, verse 8, writing about Christians who were suffering under oppressive persons who are making their lives difficult, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And he may have had in mind as well the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. When you find yourself under it, swim out from under it. Press the pause button in life. Think about what, what is most important. Think about how you will get through this or you'll die. <laughs> what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But keep your mind clear for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is near. Therefore, number two, we need to love one another fervently. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, that sounds like it's important, doesn't it? Above all, keep 
fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know what that says? That says, don't let yourself be alone in this thing. Realize that there are others who are going to suffer just like you. In fact, they may suffer more than you. You keep a good, solid, sound relationship with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You know, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? I thought I was saved so I could be forgiven of my sins. Well, I was. I thought I was, be sa- I thought I was saved so that I could be a light in a, in a world of darkness and, and I could be the salt of the earth and, and I could go out and I could have a positive influence on others. And all that is true. But isn't it quite remarkable that Peter here draws attention to the fact you have, you have obeyed the truth, you have purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren. That's just as important as anything else that you're doing as a child of God. And you are to do it fervently. Does that, does that cause a little bit of friction in your mind when you compare your life with that statement? Am I really in love with my bread? And am I really fervently loving them? I mean not just a little bit of love. I mean a, a whole lot of love. Does that describe who I am? What, what do I think about? Who do I think about? Who do I pray about? Who do I spend my time with? Who do I want to spend time with? Who's important to me? The, you see, the answers to those questions says a lot about how fervently, fervently we love one another, doesn't it? And you know, when, when, when life is hard, you may think you're big enough to handle it by yourself. But this is your spiritual family. That is the church. The local church of which you are a member is your spiritual family. And you need to be loving them. You need to have that relationship with them so that when you need them, they are there. And don't be like the Dead Sea. You know the Dead Sea? You know what's unusual about the Dead Sea? Dead. You know why it's dead? Because water flows in, but no water flows out. You know, some Christians are like that. Gimme, 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 gimme. Let it flow in. But now I don't want anything to flow out. <laughs> I want you to help me. But when push comes to shove, don't expect me to be there for you. And, and, and let me tell you something. If you don't help me, I'm going to pack up my bags and I'm going to go to another church. Because I'm here. I put my money in the plate so you'll serve me. What a, what a perverted concept of Christianity. And yet we see that sometimes, don't we? 
Proverbs chapter 10. What about that statement, love covers a multitude of sins? When you first see that, you think, well, what that means is I just need to overlook sin in the lives of others. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's all over the Bible, isn't it? Just, just people sin, just overlook it. I mean, that's what God does, isn't it? You remember how he overlooked the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember how he overlooked the sins of the people who lived during the time of Noah? I mean, that's just totally consistent with the way God is, and that's the way I should be. Just overlook people's sins. Well... If that's the thought that goes through your mind, you need to read the rest of the Bible. Paul Harvey used to say, you need to read the rest of the story. Or here's the rest of the story. And it is something that's said on more than one occasion in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. Hmm. Does that mean love tolerates sin? Well, if I'm going to be fervently loving you from the heart. That means I'm going to be doing what is in your best interest. And what is in your best interest is anything that's going to help you go to heaven. And if sin is in your life, and I see that you're not bearing up under trial when life is dumping itself on you, and I'm not getting involved in your life so as to help you, then I really don't love you. But if I really love you, then love will cover a multitude of sins in the sense that I'm going to get involved in your life and I'm going to do whatever I can to help you to go to heaven. I'm going to do whatever I can to help you to overcome those, those trials and those circumstances and those spiritual burdens because you know what? I've been there too. I'm going to show you mercy because God has shown me mercy. I'm not going to come to you and, and beat you up for your sin because I tell you what, I got it in my life too. And God's being merciful to me, so I'm going to be merciful to you. Because I understand that judgment is without mercy to him who has shown no mercy. James chapter 5, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns it back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see it? If we fervently love one another from the heart, we'll be here for one another. We'll get involved in one another's lives. And we'll help each other through. Isn't that what family's supposed to be? The end of all things is near. Therefore, number three, we need to become spiritual hospitalists. I'll come back to that word. Verse nine. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. First Peter chapter four. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know what a hospitalist is? Well, you know what a hospital is. A hospital is where sick people are at, right? People in need. A hospitalist is a hospital-employed physician who comes into the rooms and takes care of the patients. Now, I know a little bit about this because I've worked in health care with my clients for 30-plus years. I've had hospitalist groups that I work with. 
you know, how physicians, the old, the old way of doing things, and a lot of them still do this, you know, they make their rounds at the hospital. They get up early in the morning. If they've got a patient who's in the hospital, then they'll go and they'll see that patient in the hospital early in the morning. Well, a lot of physicians are at a point in their careers where they no longer want to do hospital rounds. So what they do is they turn their patients over to physicians who are employed by hospitals and who do nothing but see patients in the hospital. They are hospitalists. There will be a test. A hospital. What is hospitality? Have you ever connected hospitality with hospital? Those words sound a lot alike to me. And hospitalist sounds a lot like hospitality. Well, one who is a spiritual hospitalist is one who is hospitable to brothers and sisters in Christ without complaint because they know that's their job. That's what they've been called to do. That's a part of fervently loving others from the heart. It's, it's reaching out to those in need and doing whatever it is that you can do to help them. If they need a place to stay, you give them a place to stay. If they need a meal, you give them a meal. It's not shaking somebody's hand out here and say, hey man, did you watch that game yesterday? By the way, did you watch those games yesterday? It's not, a, it's not about shaking somebody's hand on the way out the building and say, boy, I, I hope we have nice weather this week. Oh, I'm, I'm a hospitable guy. I hope you come back. I'm a hospitable guy. You don't go to the hospital and, 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 and see someone with, with 50 years of education standing at the door shaking people's hands and saying, I hope you come back. We need to dig more deeply on this thing called hospitality. It's one of the qualifications of elders, and it's something that isn't just for them, but it is for all Christians. In Romans chapter 12, in verse 13, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Rome and again, it was just not just for the elders. He wrote in Romans chapter 12, in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And you have to note the fact that he combines the two thoughts there contributing to the needs of the saints, those who have needs, those who are needy, those who need a hospital, those who need a hospitalist. And he says to practice it. Practice hospitality. It's not just something you do once a year. It's not just something you do once a decade. It's something that we are to be practicing. We're doing it on a habitual basis. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I want to look at this verse and then go to one that deals more specifically with hospitality. But in Hebrews chapter 12, okay, the, the Hebrews, the Jews, those were first century Christians who came out of Judaism. Y'all been studying this on Sunday morning, you should know all about it. But, but they were being persecuted now because of their faith in Christ and so Judaism was looking a lot better. So they wanted to go back to Judaism. And this book was written to let them know that that's not better. Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. It's a, new, it's a better covenant made on better promises. 
But they were becoming weak in their faith. And so he writes to them, and in verse 12, he says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but, but, but may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Well, that sounds like somebody in the hospital, doesn't it? Somebody who needs a hospital. Somebody who cares about their needs who not only cares, but actually wants to get involved and do something to help. They sound like somebody who's suffering. Somebody who's burdened. Maybe they're not in a physical hospital, but their life is a hospital. They're suffering spiritually. Chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing. Are you neglecting hospitality? Or are you practicing it? We need to become spiritual hospitalists because there are people who need us. And then the final point, the end of all things is near. We need to employ our gifts in service. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it. That's, a, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Put it to work. If you're employed, that means you're working. Well, you've got a gift. I put gift or gifts. You may only have one gift. You may only be good at one single thing in your life. They can be used for the Lord. The parable of the talents says that's okay. If you only have one gift, don't bury it. You use it. You shine it off and you, you get to work with that, that gift. You put it to work. You employ it in serving others. In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You have that gift because God gave it to you. And you don't deserve it. You don't deserve anything. Stop thinking about what you deserve. I don't want to think, I don't want what I deserve. I don't, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want what I don't deserve. I want eternal life. You have your gift because God has given it to you. And you should employ it in serving others. Verse 11, whoever speaks or teaches is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. If I'm going to teach, if I'm going to preach, I need to preach the truth. It doesn't matter how hard times get. I don't need to change the message. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if people want their ears tickled. I don't need to change the message. But if your gift is some area of service, you need to do it as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's talk about your gifts for just a moment. Romans chapter 12, Paul, again, and that's a great chapter. That's a, you could just spend every day reading that chapter and it would make an amazing difference in your life. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he writes about gifts. 
Since we have gifts that differ according, look at that word again, differ according to the grace given to us. God gives gifts based on unmerited favor. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Talk about that word, exercise. What's going to, what kind of difference is it going to make in your life if you exercise one day a year? Or one day a, a month? Even one day a week? We all want that, don't we? You know, what's that magical workout? That's why you go, you go on YouTube and you, you, you find all this stuff. This is the only thing you need to do. This is the one exercise you need. This is the one workout that you need. This is the one training method that you need. Oh, I just... I love that. I only have to work out 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day, and I'm going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just 10 minutes a day. That's all I got to do. I'll pay for that plan all day long. I'll throw thousands of dollars at that plan. And then someday I'll wake up and I'll think, man, I was a fool. Well, your gifts, you need to exercise them. And, and you need to put them to work. You need to employ them, but you also need to exercise them. You need to get those little gifts to work, work, and you need to get those little gifts to work enough so that it'll make a difference in your life and somebody else's. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What is your gift? What is your gift? use it. People need you. They need your gift. It's not there. It wasn't given to you for you. It was given to you for others. 1 Corinthians 16, I love this household of Stephanus. I urge you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And that word devoted could be translated addicted. Here's a good addiction. They were addicted to service. I preached about this sometime last year. We need to use our gifts in serving one another. And, and we just need to get addicted to service. There are good addictions in life. Get addicted to eating right. Get addicted to exercise more than once a year. Get, get addicted to good things in your life and it'll make a difference in your life as well as the lives of others. Others need you and they need, they need your gift. The end of all things is near. Have a sober mind focused in prayer. Love your brethren from the heart. Reach out. Be hospitable. Help those with needs and then Get busy with your gifts. Work hard this week. Oop, there it goes again. Work hard this week. Lesson's yours. If you're here this morning, you never obeyed the gospel. We want 